I did this 517 times. But Michael Suarez, the director of Rare Book School, and my successor uh, has an unavoidable conflict and cannot be here this afternoon. The Saul M. and Marianne O'Brien Malkin Lecture in Bibliography was named for the two founding editors of A.B. Bookman's Weekly, which from 1948 until or through 1999 was among the most important journals in the antiquarian bookselling world. Covering book collecting and research librarianship, as well as used in rare bookselling, the magazine was consistently full of trade news of interest to dealers, collectors, and librarians. In 1984, Marianne Malkin began to support an annual lecture at the Columbia School of Library Service in honor of her husband, Saul Malkin. Michael Winship, here tonight, gave the first Saul M. Malkin lecture in bibliography at Columbia in December 1985. Saul Malkin himself died shortly afterwards in March of 1986. Marianne Malkin continued to support Rare Book School both at Columbia and then at the University of Virginia. In the late 1990s, she let me change the name of the annual lecture to the Saul M. and Mary Ann O'Brien Lecture in Bibliography. Until her death in 2005, she came down from New York City to attend most of the Malkin Lectures and she left the school a significant portion of her estate, nearly a million dollars. She was truly a friend of her book school. Malkin lecturers over the years have included such luminaries as Greer Allen, Nicholas Barker, Robert Darnton, Johanna Drucker, Miriam Foote, Christopher DeHamel, Lucian Goldschmidt, James Green, Selby Kiefer, Richard Kukta, Catherine Kais-Lieb, Paul Needham, William S. Reese, Kenneth Rendell, Bernard M. Rosenthal, Anthony Rhoda, Justin G. Schiller, Roger E. Stoddard, G. Thomas Tansel, and Marjorie G. Wynn, and Heather O'Donnell and Rebecca Romney. Both of them were able to school alums made good. <coughs> Heather O'Donnell began working with rare books at the Strand Bookstore in New York and at the Beinecke, <coughs> at the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library while working on a PhD in English literature at Yale. Degree in hand, she eventually left academia, working full-time for seven years in the antiquarian book trade at the New York Gallery of Bauman's Rare Books. In 2011, she founded Honey and Wax Booksellers in Brooklyn. The firm's catalogs are justifiably celebrated. Heather O'Donnell serves on the ABAA, Antiquarian Booksellers Association of America, Board of Governors, and she's on the faculty of CABS, the Colorado Antiquarian Book Seminar. Rebecca Romney helped launch the Las Vegas Gallery of Bauman Rare Books in 2008, and she became manager of the gallery two years later. She eventually moved east to manage the New York operations of the firm. 
Since 2011, she has appeared regularly as the rare book specialist on the History Channel's show, Pawn Stars. She joined Honey and Wax in 2016. A year later, HarperCollins published her book, Printer's Error, an anecdotal history of printed books. With Brian Cassidy, she's about to open a rare book gallery in downtown Washington, D.C., called Type Punch Matrix. Rebecca Romney serves on Rare Book School's scholarship committee, and she's a member of the membership working group of the Bibliographical Society of America. Ladies. Hello, thanks so much for having us here. We're really, really excited to, uh, to talk with all of you today uh, about what we've been thinking about and what we've been working on. So, many people here are more involved on the institutional side of rare books. We, as dealers, we work with institutions, but a lot of our experience, too, is with private collectors, and that's both um, at our sort of firm where we got our start, both of us at Bowman Rare Books, which is where we met, and then, again, at Honey and Wax, working with private collectors. So a lot of what we're talking about today will be focusing on that part of the rare book market. So working first for Bowman and then uh, just generally in the trade here at Honey and Wax, um, you know, one thing that we internalized in our training uh, were certain traditional values about book collecting, the right way to collect. The conventional wisdom that we certainly imparted to hundreds if not thousands of private collectors is that you should always buy the best copy that you can afford. Um, which raises the question, of course, of what the best copy might be. It wasn't actually that hard a question, though, because there were certain very, very uh, solid parameters that we knew back and forward, the first things we asked when we looked at any copy of any book. Um, what makes a copy best? What is the right way to collect? We were always curious about priority. Is this the first time that something has appeared? We were interested in edition, not just first edition, but if there was an important edition or an edition that had changed things in some way. Uh, condition, of course, fine condition. That's what you want, the absolute best condition. And then unique features, which added value in special ways, whether it was uh, a particularly fine binding or direct evidence of the author's involvement through a signature or an inscription, extra illustration, interesting marginal annotations that added value to the book in some way, um, or an interesting provenance or story behind a particular copy that made it something that a collector would really like. Um, these values were ones that we absolutely memorized, internalized, brought up anytime anyone asked, really, uh, us about anything. And the traditional book collecting model that this represents is not an obsolete one. It reflects a very sound logic uh, and it's, you know, these are, these are values by which we continue to make a lot of our decisions in terms of buying and selling. But... If you spend any time at book fairs or talking to dealers, one thing you hear a lot is that people just don't collect books like they used to. This is, it's a refrain and it's sometimes said questioningly, sometimes said as a complaint, but generally this is the conversation that is on everyone's mind. And 
is it true? Is it accurate? I think that many people feel like they've seen this anecdotally. And if that's the case, then um, why? Why is it that it seems like building these types of collections has become so much more difficult? And so that's something that we want to give a little bit of context for right now, get back into the history of the major changes that have been happening in the trade in the past few decades that speak to this change that we're seeing now. So I'm going to start in the immediate post-war period, and this is going to be, for many people, just a review, but we just want to lay out some historical movements and facts that have really changed the way that private collectors operate. Um, one of these was the post-war boom in institutional buying, which shifted an enormous amount of material into libraries, um, making the number of books available to private collectors correspondingly smaller. Um, this helps to fuel uh, a real shift toward high spot collecting in the private market. Um, one of the best accounts of the post-war period is Bill Reese's uh, 2000, The Rare Book Market Today, uh, which I read just a few years after it came out when I was a young book dealer. It's amazing to reread that essay today and see how incredibly well so much of his analysis holds up. Um, in any event, this is just a quote from Bill that uh, you know, lays out this sort of high spot model. The focus on high spots is undeniable. The major printing in the mind of man titles, the key books in every field from science and medicine to Americana, the large color plate books and atlases have left far ahead of the rest of the market. They don't stay in stock. Price, when it comes to a prime example of a major book of this sort, is less and less of an issue. An important modern collector commented, big money will pay any price for something they want. Now, so part of the reason that you get this is you have a lot of the truly rare material moving into institutions in this post-war institutional boom. So Gutenberg Bible is a great example of this. The last complete copy to appear at auction is 1978. You have an incomplete copy in the 80s, but that's it. And they're in institutions, and they're not going anywhere. And collectors see something like that, a private collector, and they say, okay, well, that, that's, I've lost my chance with that. What are the other things that I really want, that I know other people want too, and is this my last chance for that? And that feeling, that desire for something that they're worried is going to be scarce and hard to get is what pushes up the demand, even when things aren't actually scarce, because they have this sort of artificial demand that makes it seem scarcer than it is. And that's how you get things like the Catcher in the Rye, which is not a scarce book, selling suddenly for $20,000. You get this major high spot market, especially in modern first, with books that aren't in fact that scarce, um, which is something we only learn um, afterwards with the rise of online book selling. Which is, of course, the huge transformation of the trade in the past three decades. Um, this is the earliest image I could find of an Amazon homepage. <laughs> Drink it in. Um, <laughs> so the rise of online bookselling did a number of things to the, and continues to do a number of things to the book trade. Um, one of the you know, most transformative ones is that it suddenly made a market that had been you know, somewhat um, obfuscated or a little bit obscure quite transparent in the sense that a lot of books that were casually assumed to be rare turned out to be not rare at all. In fact, incredibly common. Um, however, 
correspondingly, material that really was scarce was revealed to be scarce. It's actually very hard to find that material, and the prices of that scarce material went up. But the revelation um, that a lot of, you know, sort of run-of-the-mill, medium-rare, modern firsts were out there in droves, in hundreds, really um, bottomed out a particular section of the market. Um, and of course, anyone could be a bookseller online. Seriously, anyone. Um, here is, you know, sell used books on Amazon, eBay, and online for profit. But one thing that was happening is that, uh, you know, casual people at home were just listing their books online. So suddenly there were more books for sale, technically, than had ever been the case before. But a lot of them were being listed by people who didn't really know what they were and were just duping descriptions from established dealers and pricing according to established dealers. Suddenly there was just a glut of material, and this changed the way that traditional dealers had to price and sell their books. So particularly thinking about dealers who are working with specialized material or who have brick and mortar shops, these online booksellers really change how everyone is working in the trade, because now how do you compete with your $8 trade paperback, that seems reasonable until people are selling it online for a penny plus shipping from across the country. And that really changes how people are buying, and it starts affecting the health of the brick-and-mortar stores. So that's one thing that is um, really key about the change in buying habits. But there's one other philosophical change in buying habits that you see from this, too, which is the lack of urgency. So before, when everything was not as easily accessible just there online, what happened was you'd be searching for a book. If you found it, you weren't sure when you were going to see that again. So it felt very much like, this is my opportunity. Like, I have to get this now. Whereas now, I mean, I even do this. You're surfing online, you're looking at things, and you see a book, and you think, oh, I really like that. But it's there. It's there any time. It's accessible. And that sense of urgency is gone. And that changes buying habits, too. And so this affects the health of secondhand bookshops across the board. And as secondhand bookshops begin disappearing, what we start to do is we start to lose important training ground for new collectors because that is where emerging collectors are actually learning to figure out what they like about books. That's where they are diving into these rooms of old books, books that are, in many cases, you know, published well before their lifetime, and they're getting, to, getting a feel, like literally getting a feel, for the material that excites them. So the training ground just starts rapidly disappearing. This image is of the Bookateria in Newark, Delaware, which was the used bookstore where I grew up. Um, I spent countless childhood days inside the Bookateria, it uh, closed last year after 44 years in business. Um, as you can see, it wasn't a rare book shop. There was nothing there that I would ever buy and sell at Honey and Wax. But as you know, an eight-year-old, a 10-year-old, going in there, just understanding that books had been published long before I was born, that Moby Dick looked different in 1920 than it did in 1960, and it looks different when you go to the mall bookstore, that books go through different lives and there's different ways of relating to them. That was an enormous part of me just becoming aware of the book as a physical object and my relationship to those objects, and it makes me sad that when I go back to my parents' house now, I can't go to the Bookateria and, uh, and buy a paperback anymore. Another aspect of this change in bookshops is the uh, 
the rarity of being able to get that spectacular find. Now, there was a time when a collector who's really knowledgeable could walk into a bookshop and, and you know, because of that random niche bit of knowledge they have, find something that was truly, truly great. Um, that is very difficult now because most booksellers, even the most indifferent ones, can just go online and see what other people are pricing things for and sort of just mimic the prices of more experienced or more specialized dealers. Even if maybe their copy is incomparable, there are all sorts of problems with this model. But nevertheless, what happens is that the market starts flattening to one range of prices that isn't necessarily based on knowledge, it's just a based on just a window into all of them at once. And how does a collector who has the knowledge go into a shop when everything has just been priced according to the outsourcing the internet? It's a sort of a research, research shortcut, and it's a selling platform shortcut for any new bookseller who wants to get involved. Um, and so you add that into the quickly rising prices at the top of the market, and these two things, you can see, make it increasingly difficult to put together one of these ambitious sort of top-tier collections without a significant, straightforward financial investment. Related to the transformation of the second-hand bookshop world is the transformation of the book fair circuit. Um, I have been doing book fairs now for 15 years, and the entire time that I've been doing them, older dealers have been talking about the golden age of book fairs and how the golden age of book fairs will never return. That is entirely possible. It is true that before people had an opportunity to look at a lot of books online anytime they wanted um, at any hour of the day, book fairs were one of the few opportunities to see a lot of antiquarian material from a lot of different sellers in one place at one time and to meet those sellers and to make them aware of what you were interested in. Back then, if you, if you were interested in something obscure, you had to get the dealers who dealt in that on your side. Otherwise, how would you ever see the material they found? They had to know to call you. You had to have that relationship, and that relationship was so important, not just to the bookseller, but to the collector. Um, now that that element of urgency has also been removed, in the sense that, of course, some people save good material for fairs, and it is always exciting to get there first, but there's, there's no comparison. Um, if you want to buy um, an Alice in Wonderland, you don't have to go to the armory in New York to buy that. You can buy that literally at any hour of the day from your laptop or your phone. Um, and so book fairs have grappled with changing demographics in terms of who visits them. It's, for the most part, uh, an older generation of collectors who enjoy the uh, the ritual of the fair, and then it's librarians. And that is really changing the way people present material at those, at those fairs. And um, as anyone who has been to them knows, a lot of regional book fairs at this point kind of feel like bookseller reunions. It's more of a social uh, opportunity for booksellers to just to buy each other's books than it is to meet any new collectors. I can tell you that if you're on any book fair committee anywhere, the thing that everyone wants to know is how can you get new collectors in here? How can you get new collectors walking through the door? Is there any possibility of new private collectors? Um, because they do seem to be the demographic who is least represented um, at the book fairs, in the United States at least. So one of the reasons that this is concerning, or at least something that we think about a lot, is because a primary way that we sell 
is through relationships, through the connections that we develop with collectors. In fact, that's one of the main reasons that I love my job is because I pretty much just have an excuse to talk books with people all day. And having this opportunity to really nerd out about this material with someone else who gets it, right? that's a major part of what we do. And when these sort of obvious incentives start to disappear and people can kind of just do it from their laptop and it changes how people are buying, this is all very natural. I mean, we, we do it ourselves. We, we scout online now. This is how things are going. It's, it, it is neutral. It just is a fact on the ground. But it makes us wonder, well, how do we forge these new connections? How do we find the new collectors? How do we bring them in? How do we welcome them? How do we create relationships that are valuable to both sides that can continue this world and continue its health into the next generation. So this is the thing that we're really trying to figure out. When older dealers used to tell me that people just don't collect books the way they used to, I used to, I confess, kind of roll my eyes because I felt like it was an admission that they had stopped trying um, or that they were complacent about a particular way of doing business and just didn't want to have to learn how to do any other kind of business. Um, but I will say that over you know, the course certainly of the past few years, the more I think about it, I think they're just right. People don't collect the way they used to. The right way of collecting has become so difficult um, for most people, certainly for people who do not have a great deal of disposable income, that it makes people who are, would potentially be collectors feel unwelcome and alienated from the way book collecting is talked about and described uh, in the United States. The structural changes that we just talked about, um, particularly the various uh, ways that the internet has transformed the spaces, the physical spaces where booksellers and collectors used to meet each other, those structural changes have meant that people don't collect the way they used to. But <laughs> that's my cue. That's it. But humans are collectors. I mean, you see this with children who have rock collections. You see this with um, adult book collectors. You see this with with my daughter who collects Pokemon cards. This is something that we instinctively do. And so, to us, the question isn't, oh, have people stopped collecting? To us, it's more, okay, well, how are they collecting? If they're not collecting in the ways that we're used to seeing, are we just not seeing it because they're not collecting in ways that we are used to considering as book collecting? Is there another way? Are people doing things in ways that we just, we, we don't see because we haven't considered it? And so that's really what started us thinking and acting. The primary way that we acted on our curiosity about uh, the prospect of collectors out there who we didn't know and were never going to meet in our current daily rounds um, was to found a book collecting prize, which we did in 2017, the Honey and Wax Prize, which is an annual prize of $1,000 for an excellent book collection built by an American woman 30 years old or younger. 
Um, we focused on women because we feel like they tend to be underrepresented in rare book spaces at the fairs, in the trade, and we wanted to, to see what we could find. We wanted to have an answer when people said, well, young people don't collect, often women don't collect, people just don't read anymore, they're just not interested in books. We thought they probably were interested in books, but they weren't interested in our books. <laughs> they weren't interested in what we were selling, and where were they, and what were they doing? Um, so we, uh, we decided to start this prize, which has turned out to be, honestly, the most fun thing I have ever professionally done, because the contestants for our prize are so incredibly fascinating uh, and interesting and original and self-directed. And, uh, and in truth, I wouldn't have met most of them had it not been for us trying to elicit some data about whether they existed or not and then celebrate their existence. So we initially were thinking, all right, we're going to bring attention to these different ways of collecting, we're going to celebrate them, but we honestly, too, were just constantly surprised. They really did continually teach us things. Um, but one thing that we ran into over and over again while we were um, setting this up was a slightly different challenge than we initially expected it to be. So. When we created the prize, we thought, all right, the hard part is going to be reaching these people because the Arabic world is very insular and it, it is very you know, inward facing. And as any institutions know who spend a lot of time doing outreach, that bridge building to the wider public is quite, can be quite difficult and you never know who you're reaching. So we thought, okay, that's going to be the hard part. Um, in fact, that wasn't the hard part. The hardest part we saw was that we kept on coming across this wall that we didn't even realize really was in place, which was the assumption of what a book collector is and what it means to collect books. So over and over again, we'd hear people say, oh, I don't have the money to collect. I don't have enough space to collect. I, I'm not a real collector. Like, I know I'm doing it wrong. And this actually, we're getting this, in fact, in the submissions that people are sending us of their book collections. They're saying, I know I'm doing it wrong. So this was the real challenge, is butting up against the reputation of what book collecting was in the wider world. And in fact, one thing that was so surprising to us and almost shocking, honestly, is how many of the essays of the contestants take an almost defensive, sort of obstinate, I'm on a quest kind of tone, like, I know. I, I know what you have to say about what I do, but it's actually, I really enjoy it, and this is why I set it up this way. And we were feeling like, no, we're really excited. We, re we really want to hear what you're doing. We're not mad at you. But this, this sense that, that it would be the expectation that people inside the rare book world would not find what they did of interest at all, um, would consider it just um, you know, to, to be lacking in standards. Uh, or, you know, just doing it wrong. And we felt like that note hit again and again and again across dozens of essays made us feel like there is a real issue, like a, a real situation of perception here that's not personal at all, that, that is structural, and that we need to think about addressing in a kind of structural and coordinated way. So what we want to do now is talk a little bit about some of the women who submitted collections to us, because I think you'll see, at least we saw, 
there were really a lot of things to learn here that were surprising and wonderful and really did answer these questions that we've been having. So the first example we'll talk about is Kylie Amon. So she submitted her collection in the first year of the prize. And she grew up in a very conservative community in Utah, where essentially, as she was trying to figure out her own identity, she was told that members of the LGBT plus community were not either in existence or it was a new thing based on individual choice, and that at least there was no history. She was told there was no history of this. And so her collecting started looking for authors who actually were part of history, for seeing them in the record, to say, no, 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 they're here. We've always been here. And so she started creating a collection that was based on filling in that record. And one of the things that we loved about this in particular was that the collection she built, in fact, by many of the traditional collecting standards, is not a collection. She doesn't care about addition. She doesn't care about condition. But what she was doing was she was creating what she herself called a sort of neighborhood lending library because she's still in that conservative community in Utah and she wanted the people growing up in her neighborhood to have access to this record, to see these authors, that they existed, that they were there. And so she was going to be the one who had these books that they could come over and see and borrow and read and be that for them what she didn't have. And so this is a really innovative sort of grassroots way of trying to replace in some ways one of the major roles of a brick-and-mortar shop. And that was something we thought was really surprising and fascinating. Um, we were also really interested, a lot of our um, contestants are young professionals at the beginning of their careers, have just come through you know, graduate school um, and noticed in graduate school certain gaps in the curriculum uh, and started collecting things to fill those gaps when they, they came across things that they wished they had been assigned but never were. Um, so I'm actually just going to show two, two of these. This is Margaret Landis, who was uh, one of our honorable mentions last year. She's an astrophysicist. Um, and she was collecting uh, books about women in science and women in STEM going back to the very early 20th century when there was a boom in women in science titles um, sort of sparked by Marie Curie. Uh, she talks about wanting to have this library in her classroom for her students who feel themselves to be outnumbered and unrepresented in the scientific spaces that they all inhabit um, to show them that women have been in science for a long time. Um, Samantha Montano, who was one of our runners-up the first year of the prize, is uh, an emergency management specialist. She specializes in disasters. Um, it was funny because when we were judging it, she was on box talking about her, you know, a hurricane, and it's like that's our that's our disasterologist. <laughs> um, anyhow, she uh, points out that the academic literature of emergency management really starts in the mid 20th century. Um, and that there is very little documentation of disasters that occurred before that point. So she's just been picking up books that she can find on volcanoes and hurricanes and floods and typhoons and earthquakes. Um, none of them expensive books, none of them uh, you know, what we would call rare books, but putting together this shelf of, um, of first-hand testimony and primary testimony about disasters that, as she points out, 
continue to happen with similar results. Um, so trying to fill in that aspect of the historic record, she uh, said that she very rarely looks online. She just goes into used bookshops and antique shops and asks, do you have any disasters? And if they do, she buys it. So that's, that's, her, uh, that's her method. Um, we thought that was a great organizing principle for a collection and actually would recommend you know, to other collectors. Consider disasters. There's a lot there. Another person that speaks to some of these major historical changes, shifts that we've seen. Um, her collection, Caitlin Downing, documenting the geisha of Kyoto. So Caitlin got involved with this particular topic because she was in an online community that was a, a com fandom community of geisha. And what they were doing is they were trying to collect the... Um, the annual Odori, the dance festival, um, invitations and tea ceremony cards and all of the sort of printed ephemera related to the geisha community. And they were doing it all together as this sort of fandom group. And Caitlin, interestingly, doesn't actually speak Japanese, doesn't read Japanese, but through the help of her community, she was able to track down a bunch of these programs that then filled in gaps filling out this picture that the community itself was trying to build. And so this is something that is born of an online space, made possible through online spaces and through essentially crowdsourcing from the corresponding community, all of this online. And so this is something where you see that you know, the internet doesn't even have to be neutral or evil. It is in fact something that you can use actively as a tool to do entirely new forms of collecting that I feel like this is such an interesting pattern. We're going to see more and more collections like this as time goes by, or at least we hope we are. Cherise Francis, who was one of our runners up the first year, uh, lives in Southeast Queens, which is a rapidly gentrifying um, community in New York. She started off uh, buying any book that she could by a writer who came from that area in Queens. But that led her to the existence of a you know, kind of subterranean self-publishing and small press community in that neighborhood. A lot of it conducted through barter and uh, neighborhood street fairs. Um, a lot of uh, books really outside the sort of mainstream publishing and distribution channels that she started buying them all and putting them into a mobile library and taking them around to community events so that kids growing up in the neighborhood could see things that had been written and published by people who lived there. Um, and she talked, called it an archive of the now, and she said that as she saw her neighborhood changing and a lot of the people that she had grown up with sort of forced out, she wanted to have a record of the material that had been produced in that place by the people who lived there. Um, we thought this was fantastic and also something that would be almost impossible to put together on your own. It was because she was there, present, in touch with this community, seeing these things and aware of them and had a feeling for them that she was able to put together this collection. And it really drove home to us um, how we are all living in places around people, conscious of things that other people don't notice and don't see, and that collecting that is an incredible service that all of us can do if we choose. Um, so that was one collection that we very much admired. So just to sum up a little bit with this, uh, the last two, uh, our winners, in fact, the last two years, we haven't chosen our winner this year yet, uh, 
Our first winner was uh, Jessica Gahan. And both of our winners, um, Jessica from first year and Jessica Jordan from the second, they were they did very interesting things in terms of connecting what I might call the old and the new ways of collecting. So Jessica Kahan, you can see here, romance novels is what she collected. And Jessica, in fact, collected by pretty traditional standards. She was paying attention to edition, condition, completeness. But the thing that was unusual is that she was focusing on a topic that was almost entirely ignored, in the rare book trade at least and is in fact still entirely ignored in the rubric trade. And what you can see there is that maybe people can't see collections like this because romance books don't seem like they should be collected. And Jessica here is saying, no, in fact, they can be. You can collect it and you can collect it according to all your high standards and it can tell us things. You know, she, in her essay that she submitted to us, talks about you know, how you can look for descriptions of new inventions or, um, like, aviation or prohibition or the 1932 Olympics. You see these references and you see how things, the culture of the time gets refracted into these stories. It actually, you know, as a whole forms a really interesting subject and really gives you a bird's eye view of something from a different, almost 3D angle. And this is something that people can recognize if they can just let go of their judgment for a second and say, all right, I'm not going to judge this romance. I'm going to say this is actually a really interesting event in book history. So we love that about Jessica's. It was sort of sprawling between those two. There's another good picture of her collection. And our second winner, Jessica Jordan, in some ways was very similar in that um, she, a lot of her collection was um, mass market pa paperbacks, things that you wouldn't ever consider. You just turn your nose up if you were a traditional collector. But what she was collecting was the cover illustrations by Leo and Diane Dillon, a couple who did six decades, as you can see, of illustration for book covers. And anything that they illustrated, she collected. And the thing is, a lot of the editions that they did were the mass market paperback editions. So in that case, you don't want the, the first edition. You want that edition. And so what that does is it creates this really interesting group of things. You put them all together, and you see some of them actually are, you have the children's books, which are totally different format. You have the smaller mass market paperbacks, and you see this refraction of this style. And Jessica is essentially trying to build the bibliography for this because there isn't. She's trying to create the record for something that, again, in traditional ways, it's easy to turn your nose up at. So what can we learn from these collections and from these modes of collecting and, in general, from our experience trying to do this? I mean, the thing that has been continually striking to us is that the collections put together by so many of our contestants have much more in common with the priorities of institutional collecting at this hour than they do with the pursuit of traditional mainstream high spot private book collecting. Um, we get comparatively few of those kind of uh, high spot or high spot aspirational collections because Young people can't afford those books. Um, and so instead they are finding other things to collect and other ways to collect, other principles along which to build their collections. Um, and often they are elevating material that is considered fairly worthless by the traditional rare book 
trade. Um, we are interested in what they're doing, um, I guess I would say. Um, for us, the thing that this has really brought home um, is that everyone has the right and the power to collect. Not just the wealthy, not just the privileged, not just the powerful, not just those in positions of institutional authority, um, not just those who are interested in the classics of Western civilization, although it must be said that we love the classics of Western civilization and enjoy selling them. Um, we think that the historical record would be richer for all of us if more people were encouraged to collect what they enjoy and they understand and felt authorized and encouraged to do that. We don't think that, that the rare book world as it's currently operating does a very good job of that. We think that there is a disconnect between an enormous energy and hunger and interest for collecting and the places where that collecting is celebrated. So the question we get to from this is how can we expand the popular perception of book collecting from an elite pursuit to a more democratic, inclusive one? And specifically, what are practical steps we can take on this together? Because we are all in this together. We are people who value rare books and value the institutions that preserve them. And this is something where we all need to be participating and thinking and communicating. That's why we're here. So we want to start talking about this. And in, in, we must say that these conversations are happening quite a bit now. We're seeing questions about inclusivity and representation um, across a lot of rare book institutions, the ABA's Women's Initiative, for example. I was just at the RBMS conference in Baltimore, and there were a lot of hard conversations there about this, these topics. The, the Bibliographic Society of America, the membership group, was working on these types of initiatives. There was recently a diversity panel um, hosted at MAGS right before the London Book Fair. These are conversations that people are already having. And Heather and I have been speaking a lot more about the prize with this goal in mind to get these conversations started. Hopefully, in many cases, when we talk about the prize, what I've wanted people to take home from it is instead of oh, well, this is all really great, but I can't collect because of X, Y, and Z. I want people instead to be looking at the examples we've shown and think, oh, that's really cool. What can I do? What's something that fits me and my interests and my current circumstances? How can I collect? That's the shift that we want to see. And so that's something that we're trying to think about now. Okay, what are the concrete actions that we as a whole, as a rare book community, can take in order to encourage this change, to work with the inevitable facts on the ground of how things have changed and shape it into something so that the rubric world in the future is rich and remains strong and stable. So we're just going to talk about some forms uh, and ways of, uh, of interacting with the public that we think are good. Um, so we'd like to talk just very briefly about social media, which is something that I think in the rare book world tends to be treated a little bit with like eye rolling, like yeah, you gotta have someone do that. Get better, you know, get some junior staffer to like tweet out some pictures or something, whatever. Um, actually, social media though in the book world, as those of you who are active at all know, is incredibly rich and often really, really interesting. So just to highlight a few examples of accounts that we think are doing amazing work, 
Whoever runs Sothran's account, it's some guy named Oliver, he's incredible. He is great. Um, that account went from being like a completely dead, you know, traditional, every now and then we, t you know, post a book kind of account to uh, having thousands of followers and providing this really interesting daily patter about what it's like to be in the book trade um, for people who are not in the book trade. Educating, I would say, uh, you know, in a really, really uh, accessible, interesting way. Um, so, anyhow, this is one of his, his tweets that I like so much where, you know, you see someone, I mean, this happens all the time, um, someone confused about how the trade and auctions interact and considering it a scam. That if you buy a book at auction, how can you then price it up and try to sell it to a customer? What are you even doing? That's not the price of that book. Of course, if you're a bookseller, you say, yeah, that's exactly the price of that book. <laughs> I was the only copy. I went out and I got it. And I'm the one who described it. And I'm the one who's going to sell it. Um, but here, doing it in a way that doesn't, uh, it's not preachy and doesn't uh, attempt to put up a wall between the secrets of the trade and the general public, but instead really just kind of inviting people in to like the day-to-day -day of what it's like to try to make a living in the book trade and how, how it gets done. Um, so yeah, we really liked uh, this account. And this is, uh, so this is a Twitter account. Um, one thing that's you know, become very big the past year on Facebook, which we like very much, is We Love Endpapers, which has, again, thousands of members. Um, it's moderated by the English bookseller Simon Beattie, and literally, it's just people posting endpapers, but Simon makes it really, he's, he's quite strict, and you have to really talk about what the book is, where it was published, who published it, when, and then there's a discussion, often led by extremely informed conservators and scholars and booksellers and collectors, um, about what that kind of paper means and where it was likely to be produced and what kind of books were bound in it. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a collection of eye candy, sure, that's coming through your Facebook every day. But actually, Rebecca and I were noticing that we've learned a whole lot about endpapers, actually, thanks to, thanks to following this. And it's incredible to see how many people just really enjoy it, maybe because it's not political. Um, you know, that, that it's just something where everybody can come together and admire the craft that has gone into these things. It's very hard, actually, to see hundreds of examples of 17th and 18th century end papers if you don't work in a rare book library or in a rare book gallery. But if you follow We Love End Papers, you actually can get kind of knowledgeable about Dutch guilt and various kinds of you know, paste printing. It's really, it's great. Um, this is an example of something that's not snobbish and not Mandarin, but that does have a real educational outreach element to it that's interesting and I think probably does contribute to wider book literacy. So we liked that very much. Um, so we're, with these, you're talking about sort of new online versions of what we already know, which is communities places where people have a chance to interact, to share knowledge, and to share enthusiasm, to learn. And we're seeing that, in fact, these things can be complementary and uh, go together or supplement or back and forth. Um, but the same thing can apply to this, the rapidly changing brick-and-mortar scene, too, or the, the in-person, the analog, as it were. And a great example of this is the New York Art Book Fair. I don't know how many of you have been to this. If you haven't had a chance to, you should go. Um, hosted by Printed Matter. This book fair will really, if you think book fairs are dead, you will change your mind once you've gone to this. Tens of thousands of visitors come. And it's, it's mostly young people. Um, they are 
painfully hip in that I feel so uncool when I go. I just, I, f I feel old and uncool when I go, actually. That tells you something. And it is amazing because it is just shoulder to shoulder, completely packed, and there are all of these books, and many of them are, um, there are even rare book dealers, but there are artist books, there are new books, there are um, exhibits about um, historical artist books. It's really focused uh, quite a bit on design and things like that. And the people who are going, do buy things. Like they're leaving with handfuls of books and it's exactly the sort of dream that people in the Park Avenue Armory were all going, where are the people? What are they spending their money on? Why are they not here? They're at the art book fair. That's where they are. So this is something I feel like we can really learn from you to say what's working there? Why is that working? You know, they have a zine tent. I mean, come on, like, how do you not want to go to that? So that's one aspect of like, there are things that are filling these same roles and we should be paying attention to them. Um, and the other thing to not get too self-promotionally, but it's so related to what we are talking about this whole time, and in fact has come out of many, many talks that Heather and I have had over, over quite a few months and years, is um, my new endeavor, Type Punch Matrix. The idea of this being a new rare book gallery in downtown DC, sort of the heart of where people are coming to visit. And this in some ways is me just trying to put my money where my mouth is <laughs> and say, all right, well, we need to act, we need to do this. And realizing that these brick and mortar stores are a huge part of the ecosystem of her books. Where are the points of access? Because I can attest to this personally. So when I was going through school, I didn't I was one of those people who thought rare books wasn't for me. I didn't even consider that it was right for me. I fell into it completely accidentally because of the job offering of Bowman Rare Books, which is one of the major uh, rare book businesses that is known for having a number of points of access, these brick and mortar galleries. I fell into that completely accidentally and realized very quickly that I had lucked into the perfect job for me. And I still, I feel like, you know, someone who just watches a car crash that you've just avoided. That's kind of how I feel when I think about if I would have missed that job opportunity because I would have never known. Um, I just stumbled upon it. And working in that gallery in Las Vegas, in Las Vegas, I mean, imagine this, you have people coming in, all these tourists coming in every day. And most of them had never even thought about rare book collecting before. And there were a number of people who loved it and who became collectors and became, frankly, close friends who had the same reaction I did. They didn't know this existed. They'd do it if they knew it, but they just didn't know. And so having that point of access was really the thing that turned them. And this is what I really can't forget and what really has become central to my own career is what can we do to provide those points of access and to be welcoming, to give people the space to discover it. Because I wouldn't have thought to Google rare books or book collecting. I wouldn't have thought to Google first edition Catcher in the Rye because I would have immediately thought that's not for me. But if you stumble upon it, and you just walk in and say, what is this? You know, when in our announcement for Type Punch Matrix, one of the things we included was um, prints that Amos Kennedy had made for us for, um, that say, say the name of the company. And Amos, I think most of you probably know, he was just here recently, it's all about community printing, it's all about making things cheap and accessible and getting people involved. And that's what you can do with a gallery like this, is you can have the high spots, that's fine. People still relate to those because maybe their favorite book is Leaves of Grass or Catcher in the Rye. But having things available too that allow them to go home with something that's still based in, say, the letterpress tradition like Kennedy Prince. 
you can do those two at the same time, or at least that's the idea. And this is, in some ways, a, a big leap to see how we can figure out this particular part of the ecosystem moving forward into the future. But it's just such an important part that I just felt we had to act. And that brings us to our sort of final sentiment here, which is the problem, as you can see with type punch matrix, we just want to throw out that right and wrong dichotomy entirely. Saying that we want to throw out the right and wrong dichotomy doesn't mean that we don't think that standards are important or that critical judgment doesn't have a really important role to play. It's just that standards should guide your critical intelligence. They shouldn't replace it. You should have a flexibility of mind and an ability to approach the material you see around you, the historical record, the creations of all different kinds of people at all different places. You should be able to see value in that or imagine ways of constructing narratives and feel empowered to do it, to preserve that material, to make it safe for future generations to give them that. When we say we're all on the same team, you know, it's because we love the rare book world, and we love bookselling, we love collectors, we love librarians, we love scholars, we love bookbinders. Honestly, we love the whole thing. We have the richest experience of our lives with these people and their profound connection to the material that moves us so much. And the thought that that, that is so meaningful to us and that so many people feel no connection to it or see no way inside for themselves is heartbreaking, I think we would say. I mean, it, it moves us to act in various ways, whether it's the prize or tight punch matrix, which is going to be fantastic. Um, we want to do whatever we can to change the way book collecting is thought of in the wider world. Um, and the reason we were so happy to be asked to talk here at Rare Book School is that we don't think that it's likely we would find an audience of people more qualified to think about ways in which that might happen. And so we're hoping that in the Q&A, you know, we'll learn a lot from you about what we're hoping to achieve. Thank you very much. Happy to. I have one. Yes. How many applicants did you get for the book collecting prize, and how has it changed in the two or three years? The biggest, uh, the biggest number was the first year. We got 45. Um, and then the following year, we only got 15. We attributed that to the 15 having read the winners of the first year. Um, because the truth is that of the 45, about 20 or 25 were really just, you know, I love to read and here are 20 books that I really enjoy. You know, that kind of thing. Not all of them were collections. In the second year, we got much more of a uniform standard. People who really had, you know, read what the previous winners had done and were thinking about questions like that. This year, we have 27. And we haven't read all of the applicants in there, but we did do some spot checking, and they look really good. So our hope is that we can continue to grow with, you know, with strong collections. One also 
thing that we've really enjoyed seeing is people reapplying um, with their collections much better, um, which makes us feel like we're doing a good job. We, we write a letter to every applicant, you know, just talking about their collection and what, what we would have, you know, what we'd like to see or a direction they might go or, um, and it's been really exciting to see people kind of dig down in that and think about um, what their sort of original contribution might be to a subject, subject area. Vic. Heather, if I may, just a plug for the National Collegiate Book Collecting Contest, which is administered by special collections around the country. If you go back and take the precepts that they have given you, I think you can inject new life into that program and bring these collectors up. If you look around at all the special collections, they're small, there's hope, there's Holden, these are all collectors. They come up and they support the institutions. So, That's good. We will say that one of the, the inspirations for the Honey and Wax Prize was that we, we loved reading the National Collegiate winners every year. We always really looked forward to hearing about that contest and thought it would be nice to have something that didn't require people to have an institutional affiliation. Um, it is yeah. impossible for us to refrain from pointing out that the winner of the national contest uh, was the winner of the University of Virginia contest as well. <laughs> University of Virginia does very well in all these prizes. You guys are doing a really good job. And Nora Benedict was one of your yes, yes. Nora Benedict, one of our runners up the first year, was a uh, was a Virginia. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. You left out a very important aspect of the It's, it's very true. There is a small antiquarian section at the New York Art Book Fair. There's a room. But it's true. The, the bulk of it is art being produced, art books being produced right now. Um, and that fair also, it's free, which is not the case with most antiquarian book fairs. And it offers an enormous number of things to do that don't involve just buying books. There's concerts and symposia and all kinds of other events. So you can basically make a weekend of it, even if you don't want to buy any books. Um, you can just sort of soak in an artistic vibe and eat like really good tacos and drink beer. And, and yeah, I mean, that sounds good. I mean, I, I think that's great. <laughs> Please join the speakers at the reception, which follows right now in the Verbrook School Suite on the first floor of Alderman Library.